Hey, this is Matthew Del Negro. I played Brian Camarada on The Sopranos, and you are listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you'd like a pictorial and caption companion to the podcast, follow at Potabing on Instagram. And as always, thank you for listening and being a part of this journey. Coming up is my conversation with Matt Del Negro. Matt played Cousin Brian on the show. Matt joined me in studio to share his Soprano story and discuss his current projects, one of which is a podcast that deconstructs successful people who have overcome what he calls 10,000 no's. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. One of the things I love about this project is not only hearing people's soprano stories, but also delving into all the other interesting things they're doing. This conversation was that in spades. So here it is, my conversation with Matt Del Negro. Matt, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Vic. Pleasure to meet you. Uh, and thanks for going down memory lane with me today. Yeah. Uh, one of Tony Soprano's lines from the show is, remember when is the lowest form of communication? I don't know if you remember that, but he gets up, he storms out of a dinner uh, in season six, and I'm essentially asking everybody that comes in here to go down memory lane, so I kind of feel, I feel like the angel of Tony Soprano is like looking down at me and shaking his head right now. Well, I had, uh, speaking of nostalgia, just driving over here, you know, I live pretty far. I live way on the West side now, but, um, I didn't realize until I was en route to you that I'm so close to the apartment where we had our son, you know, two blocks away, Chateau across the plate, you know, across the way. Um, so many memories there and, and I've shot there and so, you know, thinking about Sopranos is, uh, I'm excited to, to see where we go with this conversation. It's awesome. been a while. Uh, well, I'm going to start in a weird, well, not a weird place for you, but like a, a, a non-Sopranos place. You played division one lacrosse. I did. Yeah. How did you pivot from elite sports to acting? So I wanted to go study abroad at some point. Um, I was at Boston college and most people go, away uh, spring of junior year and some upperclassmen had gone to Australia for some reason I got that in my head I wanted to go to Australia you know beaches all that stuff uh, then I started to realize well lacrosse season is in the spring I can't do that so between sophomore and junior year instead I went to Italy the motherland I'm 100% Italian so um, I went to a little town called Perugia and uh, it's in the, the Umbria section of Italy. And I, I studied this place, Università per Stranieri. It's a university for foreigners. Um, long story short, I uh, was going out with a girl from BC. She was in Florence studying. I was in Perugia. We, we, uh, we broke up along the way. All stories seem to start It always starts there. with a girl, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, broke up along the way. My sister had given me a journal and the, I still have that journal. And I look at the first entries were really boring, like very obligatory. You know, today I went to the piazza, you know, whatever, and try to describe what I was doing. Then the breakup happened and I just poured all of this shit. Came, can I swear yeah, on this? Of course. It's a, it's a sopranos Fucking Sopranos. Yeah. Oh. Uh, oh. So I, I, I just poured all of this shit out into this journal. And um, 
a lot of things. I think, I think what basically what happened was I was out of my comfort zone of BC and, you know, you, you almost without realizing it, create a persona, you know, you play lacrosse, there's a whole thing that goes with that and a nickname and the whole thing that goes, just, just all this, this stuff that's, that becomes expected of you. And then I was in Italy and I was kind of like, well, this isn't, I love this, but this isn't all of who I am and who I want to be and what I want to do. And in that first journal, I had, you know, I think I said at some point, like, you know, what, what am I going to do? What am I doing? Maybe I'll be a writer. Maybe I'll be an actor. I mean, that was like a throwaway, you know? Um, in retrospect, it's not as crazy as it seemed to me at the time. When I think back now, I played a little guitar, a little piano growing up. I, 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 you know, there, there was some, I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer. My dad is a lawyer. The way he spoke about the law was similar to how I, I approach characters, which is I'm defending their perspective to the world. So it's not mm. that odd. But at the time I was like, what the, you know, who, what, what, <laughs> you know? So anyway, totally out of my element, started to question, do I want to keep playing lacrosse? All this stuff. The breakup happened. I came back on fire. I was like, I got this new voice in me. And I went back to school and I played fall ball again. Like I just got right back into it. And at the end of fall ball, uh, I was, I was, jo we had a practice. I was jogging around um, Shea Field, which is where we practiced uh, with the team. And I remember thinking, like, I wish I'd just like roll my ankle or something. Like, I want to be out of here. And I was like, this is nuts. I wasn't on full scholarship. And I just went to the coach and I said, um, I think I'm done. And he said, think about it. You still have a slot on the team in the spring. And I said, I thought about it. I'm done. And then that weekend I freaked out, like, what did I do? Cause it's, you know, that was, took up a lot of my time. It was a lot of structure and I love the guys, loved it. Um, and then I ended up going out for a play that like January, maybe didn't get it. Went out for another one that like a month later and I got the lead, but it was a one act play. Wasn't even through, on a stage through your university. At, at BC, yeah. at Boston College. Yeah, wasn't even on a stage. It was in a lecture hall. But I did it. You know, it was like it was like a two night performance. But I did it, and I, I just, I just said, caught the bug. I was like, I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> and everybody was like, what? Sometimes the craziest thing is actually like facing what you've been doing for so long in the face and saying like, I'm out. I'm done. And then that moment, like you said, where you go back and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do next? It's really liberating, but it's also really scary. But like turning that on its head is what is where, where most things happen in our life. Like, to least, totally agree. Me I mean, I mean, big, you know, you talk to anybody, it's like, that's my, we'll get into it later, but my whole podcast is about that, you know, yeah. 10,000 no's. Yeah. It's like all of the, all the struggles, all the trials, all the adversity, all the rejection, that's where you grow the most. This was, you know, this was a, a breakup essentially. And I know people who have gone through divorces and then all of a sudden their life, their lives change. I think what happens is you, you have the pain of like a separation and all of a sudden you're on your own and you're like, wow, I've got all these choices. I'm going to do, you know, yeah. and, and, and then, and then you're really, yeah, you're laying it all on the line. It's scary, but it's also exhilarating and you know i mean i really think about it i had no idea but subconsciously you did like the germ of the idea to act or write was in with you in italy and it, you you wrote it down on paper yeah so it was swirling around in you somewhere but i'm saying before that yeah. like, like when that came up i had no idea that was in me 
And, and then, and then once I started doing it, like I had no idea what to do. I didn't know what it was. I mean, I even think about, you know, we'll get into it, like what I was thinking when I did Sopranos and where my mind is now compared to then. And 20 years from now, you can interview me. I'm sure I'll look back to now sure. and go like, I don't sure. know what I was you know, doing. Let's draw a line from that, uh, lecture hall in, at Boston college, mm-hmm. uh, to the Sopranos. What happened in between and what's your Sopranos story? Oh man. Um, God, so much. Ha- I mean, that was a long, long time sure. before Sopranos yeah. uh, happened. So that was the lecture hall was like 90, let's see, uh, 91, 90, I guess like 93. 90, yeah. Junior year. So 93, I guess. Um, and Sopranos was end of 2001 um, when I got cast. And um, the interim there, so I did that play. I mean, there's, <laughs> I'm a talker. Sure. I, I feel like these, I, I gotta, I gotta limit myself here. The long and the short of it is I, I, um, I just went all out. Yeah. I, I just, I, I was an English major, which turned out to make sense in some way because the way you analyze literature is also the way you approach a script. Yeah. You know, it's a little yeah. bit different. It's more personal as an actor, but I, the same muscles. And I started taking uh, film studies classes. And so I got a film studies minor. Um, halfway through senior year, uh, I, I mean, there's a whole story of where I, w- I ended up getting another play fresh uh, uh, senior year in the fall. And I start. I went to one rehearsal, and it was not the experience that the first one was. Like the people seemed like they were there just to have more friends or something. And the the, the play, I wasn't crazy about where it was going. And now I knew nothing, but I did know that that first experience was really raw and really connected to the other people and to the material. I went to this rehearsal, and I was like, oh, not digging it. But I was going to stick with it because I always stick with everything, right? Found out that BC was playing Notre Dame at Notre Dame the same weekend that this play was going on. And I was like, and all my friends were going, and it was my senior year. And I was like, (sighs) went to another rehearsal. I just didn't vibe with the people. And I said, I I can't go and quit. I say, I'm going to be an actor after one play. I go do this other play and I'm going to, I'm going to get out of the play. But I was just, something in me said, no. And I went to them and I said, thanks, but no thanks, I'm out. And it was early enough that it didn't mess up the production. Ended up flying out to Chicago, bunch of my friends. We went to Notre Dame. BC beat Notre Dame. 41-39 is this incredible experience. Thank God I went there. Never regretted the play. And the lesson there was like, follow your gut. It was like the the outside expectations where you say you're going to be an actor. Well, then you got to do this and you got to commit. But something about the experience, I thought, I know. I, I know. So, do you subscribe to the philosophy uh, "no plan B"? Like, like no, like no half measures. If you're going to do something, you have to start it with the mindset of no plan B. Have you heard that? And do you do you subscribe? Well, to that? It's funny you say that because after graduation from college, and I told everybody I was going to be an actor. I moved home. I was working for this mason in my hometown. I was just trying to make some money so I could go down into the city. Sure. And one of my friends' dads said, uh, "So." you're going to act. That's great. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, what's the backup plan? And I said, if I had a backup plan, that would mean, I think I'm not going to make it, but I'm going to make it. Yeah. So, you know, and, and you say that, and then there are days when you're like, (laughs) 
shit, there's no backup plan. But but you know what it does? It's like, I think subconsciously, without being a total, I mean, I was responsible. I could get into that. Some yeah. of the, some yeah. of the sacrifices I made to, to, to make this, to give this the, the time to come to fruition. But there's something about committing that, that it's just, if you're forced to do it, you kind of figure out a way to do it. Yeah. Whereas if you have that, that safe haven to go back to, it's just so tempting. And I, I mean, you could still, you know, you could, I'm not saying that someone couldn't succeed if they had that, but for me, it seems like you dive off and you just, you're like, all right. <laughs> like yeah. it's either hit the ground or grow wings and, and, and swoop up. The know? older that I've gotten, I've realized that if you do anything, you have to have that mindset more. It's more important to have that mindset than anything else because uh, if you go into something with a backup plan and you approach it with a sort of like a half measure mentality, it's always going to, it's already done. It's already DOA before yeah. it has a chance to, to, to blossom, yeah. whether that's a relationship, whether that's a, a, a career pivot or what have you. Yeah. There, um, I mean, there, yeah. There are so many times when yeah. I honestly, it's okay so to have many those... times when I should have quit on yeah. paper, should have been done. Right. I, I, if I were smart, you look at it, you're like, you are an idiot, dude. To continue this. To, oh, yeah. 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 I mean, countless times. Yeah. So the fact that I was committed, I think w- w- I was kind of like, I'm in it. This is what I do. You know, you know, and there are moments, though, when you really look in the mirror and go like, hey, dude, you are you delusional? Yeah. Do you really think you can do this? Or do you, do you re- you know. When are those moments most prevalent? Like when there's like a, la- like a lapse in, in, in work? Or uh, is it a lapse in work in the beginning. You know, you're talking about what was that trajectory from that lecture hall to Sopranos. Yeah. I mean. That's a long I time. Worked, 10 years. Yeah. And I worked. I mean, I had, what would happen to me, and I look back now and I go like, it's easy to look back and do this, but, but I, I look back now and I'm like, somehow it's like, you know. God was like, every time it would get to the, you know, right to the cliff, I'd be right on the brink of just like hanging on by my fingertips. Something really cool would come through. And, you you know, this first one was this movie called The North End, which actually I did with Frank Vincent. Uh, Phil Leotardo. Yeah. Yeah. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Um, that, that That was my first kind of big break after, you know, I did a ton of black box theater for free. You know, I took classes. I, I, you, we were talking about, you know, not being irresponsible. I mean, I got an apartment in the city, 401 East 82nd, number 5A, five floor walk up, 82nd and first, thousand bucks a month, rent stabilized. It was a one bedroom. I built a wall. I built a, a loft. I had a friend from college the first year, then he got engaged and he left. A buddy from high school moved in stayed in that place. So I was paying 500 bucks a month to be on 82nd and 1st. Stayed in that place for seven years. My last year there, I was paying 632 bucks a month. People don't talk about that in an acting class. That was so important to me being here talking to you right now. The logistics, like, you know, you're not going to make money for years. I didn't see a dime for years. I paid money, you know, yeah. headshots, classes, all of it. You, you, you'd go from bartending. Travel. Wh- yeah, travel. Or, but, but just like to go do a play, you took a pay cut from your bartending gig. You know, you, you, you had to, you, so to do what you were set out to do, you had to give up money for that 
period. So, so you had to be smart about where you lived, where you spend your, how you spent your money, all that stuff. So that kind of, you know, that really helped me just get my legs under me because it was a long time before I started to make any money. And then if I'd make, you know, eventually I booked some commercials and if I would, excuse me, if I would make that money, I just put it away and act like I didn't have it. And I just live off my bartending money. Hmm. And, and so, you know, I think back and it's like, I lived four lives in one. I was in acting class. So that would involve like going to your scene partners. Which you have to pay for too. Oh, pay for yeah. acting class. Then you're going to your scene partner's apartment or whatever in any of the five boroughs to work on your scene a couple times a week. You're going to class. I was working the counter at California Pizza Kitchen. Then I would, like on Wednesdays, I remember I'd work California Pizza Kitchen during the day. I'd have my shift meal. I'd go down to 52nd and 2nd. I bartended at Blackfin. That eventually turned into bartending at this place, Turtle Bay. My brother, luckily, again, this is, I was a lucky one. My brother was one of the partners at Turtle Bay and he, and he was a manager. So I had a great bartending shift at this bar that was hopping. And so I could make some money. Yeah. And, um, you know, but then you'd go do even like a legitimate off-Broadway play. You know, you're like, oh, great. I got an off-Broadway play. You know, it's equity. It's the real deal. It was like $246 a week, you know, and I'd bartend, I'd make 400 bucks a night. Yeah. So you're, t- so for those eight weeks or so, you're taking that pay cut to do that, but that's what you have to do. But you were happy doing what you wanted to oh, do, Oh, right? no, loved that's, it, man. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no other reason. Exactly. That's you know, what, people are like, it. oh, it's so cool what you do. You're like, it is, absolutely. But <laughs> there are a lot of things Trade-offs. about it that are, that are now still very difficult. And back then, certainly, you know, I just was telling someone recently how, I think I was like 28 years old. It was late 90s. And I was bartending at Turtle Bay. Great, you know, great gig. Tons of fun doing that. But guys from BC coming in that worked on Wall Street. And, you know, I'm pouring them Guinness. And I'm like, and this is pre-Sopranos. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? Like, I I did well in school. You know, I was a good student. It's like I could have done other things. And I'm I'm going like, what are you doing? Again, are you delusional? Mm -hmm. And Sopranos came along and that was... uh, I mean, I could kind of skip to that story if you... Yeah, well, being in this... I lived in the city for a period of time as well, and being there and not feeling successful is a really hard... It's a really hard thing because you're, you're kind of surrounded by, quote-unquote, success in the city. And, uh, man, it's, it's, it's challenging. Let's do it. Let's tell, tell me your Soprano story. The okay. Day, the day you got the phone call, uh, and then just kind of go from there. Okay, goosebumps, you just asking me. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's still, actually, it still is a big deal, right? I mean, oh, it's the, big, it's the biggest, it's the biggest get the, in a way, the way I experienced it because of where I was, my age, the time in my life. I don't know that I'll ever, you know, my naivete about everything. I don't know that I'll ever have a, a, a phone call hit me the way my phone call from George Ann Walken hit me. It's it's not because I don't think I'll have other gets that will be. It's just that my relationship to my career is different because I have a wife and kids now. It's just different, you know. Back then, it was everything, you know. It, it was, was just you. It was about you. Yeah, and, and, and I was. I actually was engaged when I got it, but I was. But but it was just like my idea of the business and of all of it. It was just so different, you know. Um, so it links back to. 
the job that I was telling you about, the North End that I did with Frank Vincent, those guys, I had done that film, uh, these two brothers, Frank Ciotta and Joe Ciotta, um, Frank directed, Joe wrote it, and they had another movie uh, that they were going to be shooting in Italy. And it was a football movie, and I was like, oh, I played football in high school, I played lacrosse and cut, this is, you know, perfect. And I had kind of become, like, we really got along on the North End, and they're like, you're our alter ego kind of thing. I went up to Boston, like, I think on my own dime on a bus and, like, did a reading of this thing, and they were going to shoot in Italy. I was so excited, you know, it was like a year out. And then they got George Ann Walken as a casting director. On that movie? Of that, of their second movie got in it. Italy. And for some reason, she just didn't think I was right for that role. And I'm like, this is my role. This is my thing. And, and long story short, they cast someone else. And I was so pissed. So, so George and Walken, I was like, you know, I was like, I was not happy with her at that time. How old were you? <sighs> Probably like 26, 27, 28-ish. Okay. Um, and so then I would get called in for Sopranos, and I went in for that show for, you know, a fair amount of times for smaller roles. You know, would go in— To read for. To read for, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, go in— uh, uh, Who did you read for besides Brian? I think I read for um, the one that—maybe uh, not Matthew Bellavacqua, but I was, it was like one of those ones that had to do with libistics. Wobistics. Wobistics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wobistics. Um, that that I, I went for that. I went for um, the cousin who I think I, I know I've worked with Dom Fumosa. I think he got this role eventually. It was like Christopher's cousin when he comes out west. Okay, yeah, you remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I went, in, I, I went in for like small, like traffic cop, you know, like little things. This thing came around for cousin Brian, and I remember reading it. And it was all the financial jargon. And all these guys from BC, my brother included, they were all in the financial world. I was around these guys. That's who came into the bar. And I was just like, I feel like I could, you know, I got a handle on this. It was a big chunk of stuff talking about, uh, you know, what I offered as a financial advisor as I'm pitching Tony and Carmela on the, on the couch. And, and I just was like, hmm, I feel like I could, you know, do this. And I, had, I remember having a, a bartending shift the night before and I had the audition in the morning, the first audition. And I was like, I'm going to give up my shift. And that was like 400 bucks for an audition, which, you know. On The Sopranos, though. Yeah, but I had been but in still, for it a bunch of times. You know, and you didn't know how long it was going to be. You didn't know it was going to be eight episodes or whatever. At, at the time, I did not know. No, okay. by the time I got it, I, I knew okay. a little bit more. But anyway, I was like, I think I knew at that time it was going to be four episodes. Okay. So I was just like, I gave my shift away. I went in, felt good. and You went they, into Silver Cup? No, no, no. I went in for Georgianne originally okay. in the city. Okay. And um, I went in and she, we worked, you know, she worked on it. And she's like, you know, we kind of worked with it. And I just said, yeah, I feel really good with this. She's like, okay, great. They end up bringing me back to Silver Cup. I go in for producers and I felt like it went well. I find out from my agents at the time, they call me a couple days later and they go, you're the front runner, but they want to bring a couple of other guys back in. They want you to come back in next week. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. Like I was, I was so close. And, and the closer I got, I was like, come on, 
you know, this is the Sopranos. This is like a real role. This is not like a little thing. They're going to, they're going to bring remember the family. Yeah. And were you watching like, the show? Like, were you a, were you a viewer of the you show? You know, I was a I was a, a viewer, but I wasn't like I wasn't like I hadn't seen every episode. I was no, you know. So I was I was a fan of it, but not diehard. But you were aware of like. But the I was zeitgeist. a oh, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. it was you know it was the thing, and so as it got closer. As I realized I was the front runner and they're bringing these other guys, I'm like, oh, they're going to get me right up there. They're not going to give it, you know, like I didn't have a ton on my resume. I didn't. And um, I went back in to Silver Cup again. This is like the next week. And I look on the sign-in sheet and it's like someone from CAA and someone from ICM and whatever. And I, I was with a, you know, a, a small, like a one-man, like a, a small agency at the time. And um, and I thought, oh, they're you know, they're going to bring in these guys and this is like, they're just bringing me along and they're going to, you know, so I'm sitting there waiting to go in and somebody else went in and I'm waiting and I'm just kind of like this. And this guy comes by and taps me on the shoulder and he's like, relax, kid. And I look up and it's David Chase and he goes into the room and I'm like, fuck, <laughs> you relax, Dave. You know, so I, uh, I went into the room, um, did my thing, felt good but you know you like it, when you've done this any actors listening to this no you know sometimes you feel good you don't get it sometimes you feel like shit and you get it and you you know you know i felt good but you're like i don't know was he in the room for he that was, one? yeah yeah he was that, in the was room. that the first time he was in the room for that you? was the first time he was in the room okay and your first encounter with him was him tapping you on the back yeah, relax kid. wow so classic yeah so i i got out it was, uh, I can tell you the exact date. It was, it was December 20th, 2001. I love that. Um, yeah. That you can I, do that. That's... I go back into the city. I have like a big cell phone at the time, you know, it was Who like the, the big cell phone. I go back into the city. Um, I go into a deli in Midtown. My wife worked in Midtown at the time and I was going to get her a Christmas gift uh, and I had to go to like Park Avenue or something. I go into a deli and I, and I get like a ham, egg and cheese sandwich or whatever. Get it. I eat it in there. I guess there's no cell service. I come out, I'm walking to go get this perfume I was trying to get her. And I realize I have a message. I check the message and it's Georgian walking and she's like, Hey, Matt, it's Georgianne. And I was like, fuck. She's like, I just wanted to tell you, you got the part, kiddo. And I was like, ah! you know, I'm like, on, I, I was on, I think it's Park Avenue. And I was just like, holy fucking shit. Did you save that message? You still have it? I don't know if I still have it. Okay. I, sa I saved it for a while. I don't think I still have you know, it. I mean, you obviously don't have the phone, but that's like a big deal. It's it's surprising that she told you on voicemail that you got the part. Usually, it's for usually, stuff like that, they're like, hey, call me back. I need to talk to you. I think because it was so... I think because I, I I don't know why, but that was and I was in getting. A are you with me though? Sandwich. Most people yeah. are like for important news, like hey, I need you to call me. I need to talk to you about something yeah. that's important. Yeah, they'll give you the news, you know, voice to voice. On a voicemail is, is interesting. It is. There's an urgency. Maybe there was an immediacy they needed to get going. And it is. Yeah. I, I, but it was it was great the way she misdirected me with you know with her voice. It was like hey you know <laughs> it's George Ann, and then you got the part kiddo, and it was just like holy shit. Went into the place to get the, you know, it was, it was a very bizarre and, and such an incredible memory of this of like, 
going in to get the you, you, the perfume, and then there was like the bigger perfume. That did was you get? I was gonna say, did I was you like, get I the better? I got her the bigger perfume, yeah. and then I went, and she she was in Midtown, yeah. And I I went up to her office, and there was like, what are you doing here? And I walked in, and I remember getting like choked up and teary eyed, and like all of her coworkers came out, and I was like, I, I got it, you know. It was like, and she knew what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now because it was such. Uh, you know, it was such an incredible external validation of something that I believed in, but it had been so many years of like, not really, you know, I I, I had these little victories, but there was nothing that was, you know, substantial that was like, this was, this was the Sopranos, you know? And, yeah, it, and it wasn't just like a one-off. It was something that was going to be around, like he was going to have some meat on it, you know? You're a part of something that is going to be part, well, and you might not have known this then, but you're a part of something that's going to forever be known as one of the greatest pieces of media ever, you yeah. know? And we're sitting here talking about it still. Um, and a lot of young people are watching the show for the first time, second time through. And um, all these characters, yours included, are, are, are new. You know, and it's, and that's going to be in perpetuity for all, you know, my five-year-old is eventually going to watch this show with me one day and you're going to be young cousin Brian on there, you know, that's, that's an amazing fucking thing, Yeah, you know, and I can imagine like getting something like that, at least understanding the gravity of what the show was and then being able to share that with your spouse. Uh, it's, you can't put it in words. It's one of the things to the thing that we were talking about at the beginning. Um, you can't quantify, like no amount of money can quantify that feeling. Yeah. Is that a fair statement? Totally. I mean, and, and that's, it's funny that you say that because that was the other thing I always say that Sopranos was, was like the gift that keeps on giving. I didn't make a lot. I, I mean, I I did not make a lot of money at all on the show, but I would get jobs later, you know, after that. And I'd be a couple of days into shooting. I remember shooting this pilot with Ivan Reitman and Ivan Reitman has done some stuff. Yeah. And we're like four days into shooting and I was, whatever, I was over here and he's like, oh, come on, Mr. Bada Bing. Yeah, and I was like, cousin Brian. and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit, Ivan Reitman knows me? Now, I've been working, you know, he cast me, he was in the thing, but the fact that he had seen my work from before, that he knew me prior to that, I did, I, had, I was like, oh my God. And then I thought, well, yeah, people in the industry watch Sopranos, so yeah, yeah. They, they would. Will Janowitz was in that seat. Uh, he was uh, Meadow's boyfriend. Yeah, no, I know show. Will. I haven't seen him. And um, he was in a he was in a bunch. I think fourteen, eighteen episodes, a bunch of episodes. And the first day that his first episode came out, he describes the scene where he's he was working down in Lower Manhattan as well. And like literally from like a Sunday to a Monday, it was, it was a night and day change. Random people all over the city were just sort of like locked and loaded on his face, and it never goes. It, it it's never goes away because when when viewers of this show in particular are watching it, you're so glued to it. You know, you're like, you're scrutinizing everything with a fine-tooth comb because you don't want to miss anything. So the characters are even more a part of the fans' sort of subconscious. And does it still happen for you? Like, do you, do, do you still get the Sopranos uh, stare? You know the- what I'll get now is, but I definitely, I experienced that at the time. Yeah. Because, and I try to explain that to people that are, weren't around during that. I'm like, yeah. it was, 
I don't know. Maybe Game of Thrones has this, but there was because of there was no streaming, none of that. It was like Sunday night. You had to be there. Appointment viewing. Everybody was watching. Yeah. So it was bizarre getting on the subway after that. You know, I'm on the subway going to work, and people. It was. It was. It was a very surreal time for me. And um, but you're you're saying, oh, do I still get it now? Now what I'll get. You know, now it's like people in my town out here know me. They know I'm an actor. You know, they know I'm the dad or whatever. I'm at the school, blah, blah, blah. But they don't necessarily know that I did Sopranos. And then they'll see a rerun. Or recently with the Mm -hmm. 20-year reunion or anniversary or whatever, um, they're like, holy shit. You're on Sopranos. I remember, (laughs) you know, and and they put it together after knowing me for a a couple of years, you know. Um, So that's... It is uh, it is a show like no other, and the experience, you know, I would say the closest other show to that in terms of, like, that kind of prestige was The West Wing. I'm going to ask you about that. Oh, yeah, so yeah. So hold that thought. Yeah. Um, you did eight episodes on The Sopranos between seasons four and six. Um, share something in, in a way that you can only do on a podcast. Share something from that time um, with James, Edie, other members of the cast, directors, or David Chase. Any anecdotes, any memories, any anything that percolates up to this day? Yeah, yeah. There there are there are many. I think... Um, Without breaking any omertas, obviously. Yeah, exa- exactly. Okay. I think... Uh, and what's funny is I'm doing a job right now and, and the um, the makeup artist, she, she said, I'm Kimbra, and I go... I, I know you. We work together. And I was like, she was like, huh? And I go, Sopranos? And she's like, yeah. So we- I reached we, out to her. Oh, you did? To do the podcast. Oh, I haven't heard back, oh, I'll, but yeah. I'll, I'll tell, tell her. her. I'm going to see her in Oh, that's like awesome. That's so crazy. Um, but but so we went down memory lane a little bit, and I worked with L- Lorraine Bracco a couple of years ago. We went down. But anyway, um, the one I'll give you, I, I think this is a great one if there's any actors- listening because this was a great lesson for me. First of all, I was so lucky. I had the majority of my scene, basically every scene was with Edie or Jim. Yeah. So I was very lucky. It was like a master class every time I went to work. So I would just, you know, try to be a sponge. And um, at one point we were shooting this scene in a casino where, you know, we come out and it's the, it's the episode where Furio almost puts tony through the you know propellers the, the propeller yeah so right before that we're coming out of like this back room and the casino and i'm like you know drunk and like hanging all over uh, tony and, and and i'm going bum, 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 you know doing this thing and then we flop onto the uh, the couch and we have this little scene and it's, it's not even a it's not even a big scene we do it and all of a sudden i look over and Jim's got his arms out like this and he's spinning around before, you know, as they're calling like sound speed or whatever. He's like kind of getting himself dizzy. He's like, come on, come on, you know. So I start doing it with him. And we're spinning around. We'd spin around right up until the time when they call action. And then we'd go in and we really were, you know, uh. kind of like off balance, off kilter. So we do it. We do it a couple of times. And... I'm standing there with him between takes or whatever. And and not, I wasn't really embarrassed, but I think I was just trying to like make small talk with him. And I was like, ah, you know, I feel like, I feel like an asshole spinning in front of all of them. And we look, you know, look over to the crew and he goes, hey, look at that box. And he, and he points to the mat box. 
around the, the camera. And he's like, don't worry about any of these guys. All that matters is a fucking box. And I was like, holy shit. What he's, he's basically like, don't worry what anybody on set thinks of you. Your performance is for that camera. And that's going to last, in this case, as you're saying with this show, for a pretty long time. And don't let your work get sidetracked by your ego of, you know, worrying about what people think of you. You do your job and you do it and you go all out and don't worry about any of this. That's, I think that's a pretty damn good lesson. Just about the box. It's yeah. all about the box. It's all about the box. Wow. And I mean, there were many, <clears throat> many, many of those. You know, I was lucky because the relationship that Brian had to Tony was Tony takes him under his wing. Yeah. So I I feel like me, Matt, benefited from that from Jim, the actor. Uh-huh. I felt like I, I felt like it was it's not like I we were uh, best friends or anything, but he was very kind and and inclusive and um I just felt you know, I felt like I was like taken care of. I was like, man, this is this is a good guy to have <laughs> taking care of you. You know, That's he's awesome. just an incredible actor. And it's interesting that you highlighted the fact that your scenes were primarily with the two of them, which is, again, a, a level of specialty unto itself. Yeah. You know, it's a level of specialness, I should say, um, because uh, the two of them are just so dynamic. One of the things about the show, maybe you can attest to this, that makes it so rewatchable is the timelessness. And it, that timelessness stems from the performances. It's about two humans interacting. You don't need technology. You don't need modernity. You don't need any sort of contemporary things. It's just two humans that are interacting in ways that many of us still interact with each other to this day and that they interacted with each other in the 60s. It's like, it's just those moments, those fly on the wall moments. And they captured that scene after scene after scene after scene. And the scene with the financial planner coming into the family and trying to like sell his wares, that's a very common thing to this day as well. And they pick these moments that are so timeless. After The Sopranos, or somewhat contemporaneously with it, you had a pretty solid run on the back end of The West Wing. Did The Sopranos gig play a factor in that? Like, was there was there any overlap? No, there was no... Um, you know, I was done with The Sopranos. The bulk of my work on The Sopranos was that fourth season. And... Then I ended up doing like one little thing in the next season. Then I came back and bought a spec house from Carm a little bit later. Yeah. And then I was supposed to be in the, like one line in the, the series finale at a funeral, but I was doing another job and I couldn't go back to New York. Um, so, so West Wing came in 2005. So I was done, but it was another one of those ones where I got the job, and then once I was on the job for a little bit, people would be like, you know, you're at Crafty Craft Services, and people are like, what was it like working on The Sopranos? You know, and you're like, oh, you knew that I was on The Sopranos? Again, it's like, yeah, we knew you were on the, you know, like, everybody watches it. So it, it, it didn't have, there, there might not have been a direct correlation, but again, the gift that keeps on giving, that show, I think, helps you know, it doesn't hurt, of course, if someone ha- has seen you as a part of a show like that. So, can, can you compare and contrast the t- those two shows? Those two shows are monoliths in their own right. Um, what is the special, you know, je ne sais quoi? What is the special in and out secret sauce that those shows have that other shows don't? 
Is there anything that you can, is there a commonality between the two that you can uh, speak to or comment on? You know, one thing, I don't know that this is the special sauce. I don't think it is necessarily, but I find this interesting that um, Sopranos, West Wing, Scandal, and the United States of Terror, which I did, yeah. which is uh, Showtime, all did table reads every week with a full cast. And not every show does. A lot of shows don't do that. Does that have a correlation? I'm sure not. But I just always find that interesting. Okay. That those shows all, that, that may be neither here nor there. What does the table read do for you, the actor? I don't know if it does for the actor. It's more for the writers to hear it and see if they need to tweak, tweak things. Um, although I don't remember on either of those shows any of my material getting tweaked so much. Maybe minor little things. Um, both of those shows you know, Sopranos and the West Wing, the writing is so good that as an actor, you're like, yes, I will say every um, every uh, you know, it's it's great writing. Yeah. And and it you can be as good as you can be, but when the material starts at that level, it makes it a lot easier to be good. Are the table reads directed? Like, are they interrupted? Like, or do you just, do you run no, through No, you it? just, you read it. Somebody's reading stage directions okay. and, and, you know, you're all around like, uh, you know, and then like... Depart, so it's not like, depart. stop, can you try it this way? No, no. no. It's okay. more for everybody. What, what I thought was useful of table read, they're, they're kind of a, they're kind of a pain for everybody because everybody has to go in and do them unless you're working that day anyway. But what, what I find is that there, maybe there, it's kind of like a team. Like, you, you know, there's a camaraderie. There's, a, there's, a, there's a something like a common ground. Like if you're at a company, you know, there, there's, there are meetings where everybody has to be there. And sometimes it's a drag, but like everybody's on the same page. Yeah. Maybe that's the effect that it has. Maybe it's just, I don't know. I mean, okay. I know Scandals was kind of like, they would go around and introduce everybody and everybody would clap and applaud. And it was like a big, it was almost like a pep rally also. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something maybe, maybe there's something to that just for the spirit of the, of the show. And, Makes sense. You know, Makes a lot of sense. Um, what are your thoughts on the ending? I love the ending, man. I love my, my take on the ending. Well, I mean, by the way, I was totally with it. I was like, wait, what? You know, I, you know what's happening now, by the way, the younger generation that's watching it on streaming. Yeah, they're thinking that their their HBO Go or their app is like buffering. Right. Yeah, you know, like the people that don't know, like the the whole thing, which is great because yeah. we all thought. I remember there was a thing like out. everybody thought that like you know that there was like a you know a blackout or the yeah. cable went out, whatever. Yeah, I I think what what I thought was so brilliant about it was, and I know a lot of people were up in arms. For my interpretation was. Whether he gets whacked right there or he doesn't get whacked ever or he doesn't get, you know, or it's 20 years or 10 years, he is always going to be looking over his shoulder. That's the life that he signed on for. That's the choice that he made. Live by the sword, die by the sword. You're going to be with your family. You can try to get out, but you chose this life and it will follow you. And so every time, you know, the bell rings and somebody comes in the place, you're going to be looking. Every time somebody go, you know. So I thought it was brilliant just because it was, it, it, it encapsulated what he will live with forever until he's six feet under. Yeah. And, and, and I, I thought it was kind of just brilliant. You know, what, what do you think? Um, I go back and forth all the time. 
You know, I think about it, we, we analyze it closely. There's a lot of really good academic prevailing theories that are on the internet. I mean, there's universities that have designated seminars to the show and the ending and the analysis of the frames. And I had Sidney Walensky in here, who was the editor on The Sopranos, and he edited that final episode. And I asked him, I'm like, look, you're one of a few people who have seen all the stuff that was on the cutting room floor. It's probably a handful of people that know all the stuff that did not make it onto the screen that we saw. And I just asked them, I'm like, you don't have to answer, but I just want to see your eyes. You know, were there additional shots of the man in the members only jacket? And he just kind of stared at me blankly. He's been very conditioned, but I would like to think that that was the end because, um, that season was very stressful for Tony and, you know, Phil Leotardo's dead. And, um, there's probably a lot of there's a lot of people that want to get revenge and it would have been a perfect, the timing wise, it would have been perfect. Um, but out of respect for the viewer, um, why show him right dead? That's why I thought it was brilliant. What does it accomplish? That's what I'm saying. To me, it answers, it kind of brilliantly answers all of it. Like, it's like, totally. It's like, well, I think he would have gotten whacked. Yeah. He did. Yeah. Well, I think he would have survived for what, he did. There's a Whatever th- you want it to be. It's like a dream. Yeah. Whatever you think it is. Some people think that whole sequence was a dream. You know, that's another thing. And other, other people think that uh, there's a theory out there that the, the, the viewers whacked. You know, and I like that. I kind of, I kind of agree with that. Like that is because I didn't want the show to end. I know that. I, I remember oh, the that's day. That's cool. Yeah. I remember the day I was working and I, I left early. I was like, I need to get ready for this. And I went into my room and I watched it by myself. It was this weird thing. I didn't want to watch it with my wife. I didn't want, I was just like, no, I want to watch this by myself. She's like, but we watched the show. I'm like, I don't care. I want to watch it by myself. And she's like, oh, you know, fine. She didn't love it as much as I did. And at the end, I actually felt like a part of me died. And some weird, this sounds so silly, but um, it was an important piece of art. You know, and I don't get to, I don't get to, engage with it anymore so yeah. i actually like that theory the most i think everybody dies you know yeah the, the protagonist uh the viewer uh hbo in many ways until they found game of thrones like it's yeah. like what do you do next yeah you know so anyway that's I, that's really cool and you know what i have not you know full disclosure i have not read up on it much and it, it it's, it's it, that was just my own personal take yeah as i was watching it that's what i thought i mean that scene was so tense yeah. With her parking outside. I mean, the whole thing was so tense. And then I just, you know, there's that initial shock that it's over. But, and then afterward, I just thought like, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, and the yes, it's, it's unsatisfying. It, it, to me, it's like, it's unsatisfying in the best way that, that it's actually satisfying. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I it's, totally it's, it's it. like, it's cut short. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. the point. And life is not clean and nothing right. is really wrapped that's up in a bow. That's, that's the That's the David point. Chase way. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of ambiguity in everything. Yeah. You know? And the interesting little sad production thing that I learned from uh, Jamie, Lynn Sigler, who was in here for uh, the podcast as well, when she was parking the car, I asked her, like, when you run to Holston's, like, do you see your family? And she, like, looked at me and she's like, you know, actually, no one was there. Like, I, 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 that scene, my scene was shot separately from the inside and I was like oh that's that's kind of devastating because I was at least hoping that there was like a final thing and she was like no but the last thing that was ever shot for the Sopranos was her parking scene but she just ran to a spot 
and then there was a spot where they were, she was supposed to go and, yeah. and that's sort of like the inside baseball it's not so interesting but to me at this point I've been analyzing it so much I just wanted to know if like Tony and 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 uh, Meadow made eye contact right and she she uh well, she killed me well on that. Tony and Meadow did just that uh Jim and and Jamie didn't oh that's true there you go <laughs> you know what I, mean? I like that there you go yeah um more recently you've worked on Teen Wolf Goliath um and you teach acting is that correct? I read that was a, I, I did for a little for a little bit. while. Yeah, but now you also have a podcast. Yeah. Um, how did you get into audio? How did that happen? So um, I I do voiceovers as well. Okay. So I've been you know around audio houses and actually one of the guys that owned one of the places where I I did a recurring voiceover gig was the first person to say, hey, do you listen to podcasts? I was like, I don't know what a podcast, what do you mean? What is that? When was this? What year? Um, it's not that long ago. Okay. I mean, it's like probably five, six, seven okay. years. Okay, they're still pretty new school then. Yeah, 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 yeah. maybe it was five or six yeah. years ago, I don't know. And it was Mark Marin, okay. uh, WTF. Yeah. So I was like, no, and he showed me how to do it. And um, I listened to Mark Marin interview Paul Thomas Anderson. Okay. And I was like, wow, this is awesome this is awesome. I mean, what a great conversation they're having. And it's so laid back. And it's like, I feel like I'm in the room with them. Mm -hmm. So I thought, huh, you know, I've, I have all these friends throughout my life that are really pretty high in whatever field they're in. And they divulge a lot of information to me. Like people, for whatever reason, will open up. And I, I've had these conversations just my whole life. I got, I like people. I'm curious about them. And I thought, Hmm. You know, like I, I would love to have this kind of conversation. That's it. Kind of went in and out. Uh, and then I, uh, I have a friend who had a podcast. It was more fitness, but also kind of like dealt with authors and, and just a, a bunch of different, um, guests and it was really good. And I started listening and it was pretty successful. And I started asking him, about it and how he started it and all this. And and I had had a conversation probably eight years ago, 10 years ago with a friend of mine's uh, parents were out from Philadelphia and I had, I had known him from New York. We had acted together and his dad was out and he said, how's it, you know, how's it going acting? And I said, it's good. I said, you know, I get asked to go speak to some schools like MFA programs around Los Angeles. And I basically tell them, you know, when you get out of here, you're going to be, what I describe my career is I'm told no for a living. And so my friend's dad was like, how many no's do you think you've heard? And I was like, huh, you know, five days a week, 52 weeks a year, almost at that time, it was like almost 20 years. I'm like, I don't know, 10,000 no's, you know, like just like throwing it out there. Cause I like Malcolm Gladwell. 10, I was going to say, hours. did you know that about the 10,000 yeah, hours? I had read that? all okay. the Gladwell books. Yeah. So I had that and I just kind of threw it out there as a joke. And, and, and we just, I laughed and I said, oh, that'll be my bio someday, 10,000 knows the Matthew Del Negro story. That was before I knew about podcasts. Then when I started getting this, this itch for the podcast, I thought that's what I want to do is, is talk to people from all different fields about how they got to where they are, you know, what they had to overcome. Because a lot of people will come up to me and go, oh, you're an actor. Like I said earlier, you know, you're an actor. That's so cool. What do you do? And I'm like, Phew. Well, it's probably a lot different than your view of what you think sure. it is. Yeah. And so I suspected if I sat down with 
other people in in my field and in other fields, we would find the same thing. And that's what I've found. So I've, I've been really lucky. And, and, you know, people in the beginning said, you should really just stick to your industry. And I said, I don't want to just speak to my industry. I want to, I have entrepreneurs, cancer survivors, professional athletes, um, healers, nutritionists, you know, uh, actors, writers, directors, producers. But it's it's been like a, like a masterclass on how to persevere, uh, strategies of how to, you know, be more successful or more, um, just, just how to navigate your life and how to get through the really tough times when it feels like, you know, I said to you before, there were many times when logically I probably should have said I'm done. And some, for some reason I just didn't, you know, I, I worked through it. This is, stories from people in all different and and each guest honestly amazes me more than the last and then i walk away like shit what have i done because <laughs> they're for, so impressive i mean for someone that may not be familiar who hasn't listened are there is there an episode or two of yours that stands out that you would like if, if you want to get an introduction to the pod uh, listen to this and listen or listen to that yeah you know what i just maybe because it's fresh in my mind because it was recent but I had this this uh, woman from the reach out to me actually and say, you know, I've heard your podcast and I work for Susie Batiste, who is uh, the founder and CEO of Poopery, which is like a five hundred million dollar company. And she said she's got this incredible story of resilience, and she was amazing. I still I was like, how did you guys find me? And she's like, oh, I you know looked around and we really like what you're doing. And uh, so we wanted Susie to to come in. And she had this story. She was uh, grew up in poverty, sexually abused as, as a, a kid, uh, physically abused by an ex, attempted suicide in her 20s, uh, was like a serial entrepreneur, kind of bunch of businesses that didn't make it, went bankrupt twice. When she was 38, she went bankrupt and she said, she's like, I remember the sound of, of the, the tow truck taking my car out of the driveway. She said, I had nothing. And she just kind of said, I'm done. I'm done. And for four years, she was kind of done. And then she had this idea for poopery and she went, and she was just amazing. She was just this, this really uh, incredible spirit, like in the room with mm-hmm. her, she was, you know, and her story was amazing. And, and the, and the company is so successful. If you listen to podcasts like Oprah, all these people, the, the poopery is one of the, you know, the, the, the products that's always being on everyone. I feel like I hear it all the time and I didn't, you know, I didn't connect it to her because uh, they came to me. Sure, until, you know. sure. But she, that was amazing. I've got Gad Elmaleh, who's my, uh, co-star in this upcoming Netflix show. He's this Friday, and he's, you know, one of the most famous guys in France. He's this uh, comedian. They consider him the Seinfeld of France, and we actually— I saw him on Conan, actually. Was he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. he was on Conan yeah. recently yeah. promoting our show. Yeah. And he was in town in November and staying at the Chateau across the street, so I interviewed him over there. And what was cool was we had done a season of TV together, so we're just sitting there shooting the shit, and he— it was it was very different. I was proud of it because it's it, he he's interviewed all you know he's done tons of press for years and years. But I feel like it was a very intimate conversation, and um, some of the stories he told were really vulnerable. And then he's also funny. 
But honestly, uh, my suggestion, if anybody's listening and they want to go check it out, go through and see which guests speak to you. Because I, you know, I have like NFL players. I have, it just depends what you're sure. into. But they're yeah. all, honestly, they're all, I, I'm, I'm blown away every week I sit down with people. And I know that sounds like I'm, I'm like pitching the show, but I really am. I'm, I'm every week I'm like, holy shit. No, the nice thing about on-demand audio is that people can dip into it however, whenever, and wherever they want. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, there's no nice thing about podcasts is uh, the people that listen and the people that tune in know they're expecting an intimate conversation. Uh, they're expecting to hear something that they won't necessarily get in other forms of media. Yeah. And um, if you consistently deliver that, they'll find something that they like. Yeah. How many episodes have you done so far? I've done... Um... Close to ninety, almost to your hundred. That's cool. Yeah, do, you, have a, you, have a, you have a big guest plan I for hundred. Is that a thing you're thinking about, or? Uh, yeah. Well, I don't have anybody right now. Um, I don't have anybody right now. I, I have. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of taking it as a. It's funny. I, I've been like, it's been very organic. Yeah, the yeah, way yeah. it has it, to the be. way it's come. It has to be. And uh, Marin just did his thousandth episode. Did he really? And it's literally just him and his producer just sort of talking about like the journey. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's like behind the scenes, nuts and bolts. Do you remember when we used this? And do you remember when we couldn't figure out what to plug that into? And yeah. Um, yeah, I liked listening. He had one that was talking about the Obama one. Yeah. They talked about like all of the leading up to it. And it's, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. Like, it totally is. That's actually one of the cool things. That's one of the, I think one of the Mount Rushmore moments for podcasting in general is the day that uh, Obama drove up into his Highland Park neighborhood with all the cars. And those are narrow streets, by the way. Yeah. Um, and funny story, that house that his original house that he did the WTF in went for sale last year and I live in Silver Lake and I fantasized about buying it and making it the headquarters of my company. Yeah. It kind of would have been like a good Some, omen. I thought somebody bought it like for, didn't somebody buy it for a lot more than it should Somebody have been, bought, somebody yeah. paid a hundred thousand over asking, um, but it was a, they, they bought it to live in it. I would have, I would have wanted to make it like my company headquarters yeah. for like a good omen to podcasting. Yeah. Um, but that, that story of like getting a president of the United States to it's come incredible. to your house, which is a modest dwelling and into the garage and sit down and just shoot the shit like we are right now, yeah. probably in a space, not much bigger than where we are, yeah. you know? And that's a cool, amazing sort of like on the map moment for podcasting. Yeah. I mean, that's what was cool about the episode where they talk about it and the secret service coming beforehand and how they were freaking out. And then there was like a, you know, like a sniper on the roof of the garage. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's insane. He just said it was like helicopters. Yeah. He yeah. said like the neighbors are like, what's going on? And yeah. it, it sounded, yeah, it's bananas. I mean, it really bananas. it is. Yeah. Uh, what's on your plate right now? Any projects coming up that you want to talk about or let listeners know? Yeah. I don't know when this will air, but two days from right now, which is April 12th, Friday, April 12th, Huge in France, uh, Netflix comedy series with Gad Elmaleh, who I was saying I, is my guest on my podcast this week. Um, that comes out. It's eight episodes. Um, really, really excited for it. Uh, Netflix seems to be behind it. And the premiere got a lot of love. And my character, I love my character. I'm playing an actor in it. Oh, and, nice. And it's, it's like, it sends up all of this stuff that we do as actors. It's, uh, it was a lot of fun. I love the people and, um, it's beautifully shot. It's funny. It's got a heart. It's right up my alley. That's called the huge in France. Uh, and then I just started working in New York on a new Showtime series 
that will be out, uh, I think, June 16th, starring Kevin Bacon and oh, Aldous Hodge, yeah. City on a Hill. Cool. So I, I will come in in the middle of that season, that first season. And that's cool because, uh, one, everybody involved, Tom Fontana, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, it's, it's a really uh, great group to be working with. And it's also, it takes place in Boston in the early 90s and mid 90s. And that's when I was there. It's your wheelhouse. So it's, yeah, it's like exactly when I was there. Yeah. So that's been cool. I've, I've just, I've only shot one episode at this point and I'll be going back and forth this spring. To, Are you from Boston? I'm from New York, Westchester County, New okay. York, but um, I went to school up there with a bunch of chowder heads, so I can, I like doing that. You can turn it on. I like that. Um, are you reading anything good at the moment? I've been reading, um, I, I, actually, I just started rereading a, it's not a novel, but it's uh, Larry Moss's book. It's an acting book called The Intent to Live, and I had read it, um, I mean, been reading a bunch of things, but uh, that I just took with me on my last trip to New York. I had read it and was very inspired by it about 10 years ago, revisited it, and I've been like underlining and just like remembering all these things I forgot. Also just read this book, The One Thing. Um, Gary Keller, I want to say, is the author. I may be butchering that, but that's just, that's kind of about focus. It's not a novel. It's more like a, a book about, you know, focus and all that. I haven't read a novel in a bit. What music has been on rotation for you the past few months? <sighs> on the way over, yeah, I had uh, Jack FM on. Okay, ninety three point one, and yeah, and I it was just randomly on. But I realized I don't listen to I'm listening to podcasts all the time. I'm, I'm listening. What's your favorite podcast right now? What are, what are your What are your top two, three go to ones on a regular you know, basis? I, I will. Um, there's a guy that I interviewed recently that has a new podcast and I just kind of dig it. He, yeah. It's called the Charlie Rocket Show. Okay. And he was just this, just this like incredibly like unique dude who came on and his story was that he, uh, he was over 300 pounds, had a diagnosis of the brain tumor and he was like, uh, in the record industry, uh, the record industry, he was, he was like a, a hip hop producer in Atlanta and he just went cold turkey, left the business and said he wanted to be an athlete. And he started running and he did, he like, he biked across America. He did a bunch of marathons. He did an Ironman in Australia and Nike. He ended up making this like fan-based uh, commercial for Nike where he put himself in. And at the end, it says insert Nike logo. It went viral and Nike called him, brought him up to Portland, put him in a commercial with Colin Kaepernick. Colin Kaepernick and Amazing. Like, yeah, and he, his thing is like it's just him speaking into the mic, and there's some cool music and stuff. But it's that that kind of has me right now. Um, I will listen to mine just in preparing it, like you know. Go so I'm, I I like mine. Um, there, I, I have a, a bunch of friends now that have podcasts. My my buddy Jay Faruja, I was telling you earlier, he's got Renegade Radio. That's really good. Um, Mark Marin, although I haven't listened to him in a bit. Um, are you a Boston sports guy or are you in New York? No, nah, okay. New York, but you know what's what's funny that's happened to me is I, I was so into sports growing up and I feel like I've I've just like, for whatever reason, I'm like a, like a playoff fan. Like I'm not like a diehard. I got two kids. I'm like yeah. always at their games or I'm not, no, I'm not like, you know, like sports crazed anymore. 
anybody that spent any time in Boston, I always ask because I just assume that there's like some amount of ownership over like their. Oh yeah, but I, but I was run. from New York, so and I then kinda, you, went to, you went to school in yeah, Boston. Yeah, kind of hate them. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's good. It's I'm kind of tired. There's so many sports podcasts out there, and most of it is devoted to uh, the the New England dynastic yeah. oh, sports. Bill well, Simmons, uh, the Ringer, all that stuff. Yeah, so. my, I mean, I have so I still have a lot of friends that are from Massachusetts. They're all. Yeah, they're all diehard, and then my wife's cousins all married, like a, a couple of them married uh, Boston guys, and they, they're just, it, it, there is a certain thing with Boston guys and their sports that if you're not from there, you kind of, you can't, you know, you can't give in to them. Finally, um, are you on social media? Where can listeners find you? Yeah, uh, right now, most active on Instagram, which is at Matty Dell, M-A-T-T-Y-D-E-L, uh, I'm on Twitter at Matthew Del Negro, Facebook at Matthew Del Negro, and there's a, a fan page. And then um, the podcast is called 10,000 Knows, and that you can go to 10,000knows.com, which is just 10000nos.com, or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Any place you find podcasts. Any place you find you podcasts. You didn't sign up exclusively with one of those, like, uh, a paywalled, uh, the Luminary. Have you heard about Luminary? No, no. So Luminary is a new company. They raised $100 million, and they basically are going to independent publishers and giving them a sum of money in exchange to have their show distributed solely on their platform. Uh-huh. And so there's this there's this sort of faction happening in the podcast universe of like going it alone versus having your audio in a in a walled garden. Right. So check out Luminary if you haven't. Um Matt, it's been a pleasure. Oh, Vic, thank you, man. Great questions and really nice to to go down uh, memory lane. Much appreciated. Thank you again so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs>